I've been wanting to say this for a long time. I don't know that I've ever said it from a pulpit before. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. Now, it's absolutely okay if you can't find it. It's one of the shortest books in the Bible, and it is the shortest book in the Old Testament. So the Pew Bible number is there in the bulletin, Pew Bible Bible number, page number, uh, 772. Or you can look it up in the table of contents. If you turn on your Bible instead of opening your Bible, you can do a search. Find Obadiah. I hope it will be worth it for you. I think it will. Now, as you're looking, as you're finding Obadiah, I want to uh, begin a little bit differently than I normally would in, in preaching, and it's because of the uniqueness of this book. We're taking a little bit of a break from the Jesus We Need series today by looking at this passage. And I, I have to tell you already, you may hear something today that will shock you or surprise you or offend you. Every word of God's word is God's word. And it sounds like, it may, might sound like it's coming from another world. It's because it is. It's coming from an ancient world, a world of ancient warfare and conflict. But here it is in the Bible. But you will find that human nature doesn't change and God's truth doesn't change. And the truth that is in this book is is timeless. So let me give you a little bit of a, a lay of the land. Here's where we're going before I read. We're going to see in this passage today, these four verses, that God can and will use anyone. God can and will use anyone. We're also going to see that God can redeem any situation, no matter how bad. Any situation, no matter how bad it is. And then thirdly, we're going to see how he makes that possible. What does that look like? How does he do that? How does he make that happen? You may be asking these very questions today. Lord, what do you want me to do? Will you use me? How are you going to use me? I don't know. I'm confused. Or you're walking into a situation today or living in the midst of a situation today that is an absolute mess. And you're wondering, how in the world is God going to make good come from this? How in the world is he going to redeem this circumstance, this situation. Well, let's read Obadiah 1 through 4, and before we do, let's pray. Lord, you have promised that your word is your word. It's you speaking to us. We're about to read you speaking to us. But we also know, Lord, because of our fallenness, our sin, our blindness, our deafness, that we need your Holy Spirit to see, to feel, to understand, to know what you would have us learn today from 
this passage. Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Help us to see, to behold beautiful things, wonderful things, life-changing things in your word. And even as we read it, we pray that you would open our hearts. Holy Spirit, come and open your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Obadiah, beginning in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. You have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. First, God can use anyone. And we see this in the very first verse, the vision of Obadiah. There's no such thing, and you know this, there's no such thing as an insignificant book in the Bible. There's no such thing as an insignificant or unimportant person. And as we look at this book, something comes, comes across, hopefully, right on the surface. Don't miss what's right on the very surface. The fact that this book is so short that it is so small, it's, it comes from a minor prophet, doesn't mean it's unimportant, it means it's short, it's only 21 verses, shortest book in the Old Testament. It's like a, a, a small town that you blow through and not notice. I think I could make an argument based upon internet hits and online Bibles and purchases of commentaries that this is probably the least read book in the Bible. Probably the the least read book in the Bible. Many Christians will live their entire Christian lives and never hear, hear anybody say, open your Bible to the book of Obadiah. Maybe you'll hope that you don't ever have to go through it again. I don't know. I recently discovered it uh, myself, but poor Obadiah, not, not a whole lot of respect. Not only that, we know virtually nothing about the man. We don't know where he came from. We don't know anything about his call to be a prophet. The, the, the name Obadiah is very common. It's simple. Nothing special. Nothing special about this name Obadiah. But we don't know really much about him at all. Family, background, calling. We don't know. We don't even know, get this, we don't even know if Obadiah is his real name. Obadiah means servant or worshiper of God. We don't know. So as we move into the book, 
remember, you know, look, if, you're, if, if you feel like you're confused, if you're anonymous, you don't know what the Lord's doing in your life, you wonder how God's going to use you, Obadiah's your man. Here he is. Small, seemingly insignificant, passed over, short, not often read, but God knows the truth. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows about you. He knows about Obadiah. Nobody is unimportant. God can use anybody. Secondly, God can redeem any situation no matter how bad. Now, if you know anything about the background or context of Obadiah, it's bad. It's bad. And you know it's based upon a good old-fashioned family feud that is fueled by pride. Not that you would know anything about that. I know that some of you very much do. And right in these verses, at the outset of this book, Obadiah goes right to the root and the heart of the problem for every human being that has ever lived. He talks about pride. The pride of your heart has deceived you. And he's speaking here about Edom, and this background of this family feud that begins way back in Genesis 25. Let me read you just a few verses. And Genesis 25, beginning in verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, Let me have some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name is now called Edom, and Jacob said, sell me your birthright, and you can have some. And Esau said, I'm about to die. What's my birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob 
And Jacob now has the birthright, and Esau despised his birthright. Now that's a great way to get a healthy family started, is it not? They're already fighting in the womb. They're deceiving one another. Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. And eventually they become Judah and Edom. Judah and Edom. And here's the background. Babylon comes into Judah. They sack Judah, conquer Judah, haul them off into exile. And Edom stands there watching this, cheering supporting this foreign invader invader that comes in, attacks Judah, the people of Jacob. Not only that, but the refugees that run away, captures them, sends them back, even sends them to Babylon. This is a terrible situation that begins with a family squabble and ends up with nations fighting one another. And God steps in and says he's going to bring judgment. And you see, it's all fueled by competition. It is fueled by pride. I was talking to some of the young adults this morning. I'm I'm very excited that sometime coming up very soon, the, the rooted community, young adults, they're going to be reading through C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And if you want to know... Maybe you don't want to know, but if you do want to know, (laughs) if you do want to know the true nature of what pride does to us, there's a chapter in that book called The Great Sin, and you will find no better description of pride anywhere else. But what you really have to know in addition to that is the background. Lewis is speaking on the radio to people during World War II in England whose country is being bombed. They don't even know whether they're going to lose a war or not. And Lewis is getting to their hearts and reminding them, look, the fundamental human problem, whether it's English or Scottish or American or German or wherever, is pride. is our pride. And he says this, Pride has been the chief cause of misery of every nation in every family since the world began. For pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up every possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. And listen to this. Pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next guy. It is the comparison that makes you proud. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. And now God steps in and He's going to deal with this. He's going to bring... As we see in the first couple of sentences, he's going to bring justice. He's going to bring judgment. And later in verse 15, he says he's going to bring this to all the nations because of pride, because of sin, because of competition, because of this warring going on. He's going to bring judgment to all nations. How's he going to do that? 
God can use anybody. He can use Obadiah. He can bring redemption to any situation. And this one's bad. How? How's he going to do that? Now, in Obadiah, we see a description of a prophecy. This is what God's going to do. This is how he's laying it out. In Psalm 137, which you should always read alongside Obadiah, we have an experience of what he's talking about, a feeling of what he's talking about, a feeling of being conquered and exiled. And if you know anything about Psalm 137 that refers to this judgment and to Edom, you know it begins beautifully. It's a beautiful psalm. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. This is Jacob's people, Judah's people, now in exile in Babylon. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Hey, sing us one of those songs that you used to sing back in Judah. You remember? Before you were slaves? It's wistful, it's longing, it's, it's beautiful, it's lyric. But then as it goes on toward the end, the psalmist says, Remember, Lord, against the Edomites, that day of Jerusalem. And then in the very last verse, and I've mentioned this before, but maybe you, maybe you grew up in a church or have been in churches where they have responsive psalm readings. And by the way, we're going to read this psalm in our psalm service right down there. So be ready. Many of those responsive readings that you often find in hymn books have this one left out. Because at the very end he says, the psalmist says, Blessed is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. What is that doing in the Bible? There's always a couple of gasps when that's read. It's in the Bible. What do we do with that? What's happening here, it's a little bit hard to see, but what's happening here is a man who is in exile, who's experienced the exile and all the sadness that goes with it and all this warfare is stepping into the presence of God and treating God as a judge. He's acting as a plaintiff and he's calling for justice. The scene is a courtroom. We have a plaintiff calling for justice. How many times have you said, God, when will justice come? When will judgment come? How long? How long will this go on? And the sentence he suggests, not that he's going to take vengeance, but he's longing for the Lord to, to bring justice, to bring judgment. And he's saying, do to them what they did to us. It's not right. Bring justice. Now, let me step back for a minute and ask you a question. Have you ever had anybody in a conversation with you take you out of context? Don't you, it drive you crazy when, when somebody takes you out of context and they, they say something about what you said or what you did, well, particularly when it's on social media? Yeah, well, I said that, but that's not the whole story. 
I did say that, but I gotta tell you the rest. You've gotta see the big picture. We've gotta see the big picture here. Even as we read the Bible, try to understand the Bible, remember, don't pull a, a, a verse out or a chapter out and say, this is what the Bible's all about. You wouldn't do that with a, with a novel. You just pull out a section and say, this is what it's all about. No, you just get a, a distorted view of what the story is. What happens now? What happens here? We have a turning point, and it happens in Luke chapter 19. Jesus steps in to this mess. <laughs> Jesus steps in to this family mess, this nation mess. Jesus enters the story of Jacob and Esau, of Judah and Edom, of the psalmist in exile on the very day that he enters into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, during the triumphal entry, the passage in Psalm 137 is on his heart. And you're seeing the, you're seeing the big, wonderful picture of the Bible and the way it, it fits together. He says this, as he approached Jerusalem, this is Luke 19:41. as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, encircle you, and hem you in on every side, and they will dash you. That's a quote from Psalm 137. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, this word dash, it's the only place that it's mentioned in the entire New Testament. And it's pointing directly to that somewhat shocking psalm that we just read. This is pretty amazing. It's just amazing. And Jesus has that in his mind, in his heart, as he rides into Jerusalem the last week of his life. He's predicting the fall of Jerusalem, but he is weeping. He's not gloating. He's not saying, you're going to get yours. I'm finally going to bring judgment and justice upon upon you. He's riding into town as they're cheering, knowing at the end of the week he's going to be hanging on a cross, and he's weeping. And he will say, my life for yours. He's the one. If we look at the, these previous passages, the Old Testament, under the shadow of the cross, we see that it all points to the suffering and sacrifice and justice and judgment that comes down upon Jesus Christ for us. The judgment, the justice, the wrath that we deserve comes down upon Jesus Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. You see, grace is costly. 
to Jesus. It's free to us. Mercy is severe to Jesus. It is kind and patient and long-suffering with us. Love leads to death and resurrection for Him. It leads to eternal life for us. His life for yours. There's only one person who's ever lived on this earth who was perfect and sinless. There's only one person who ever walked the face of the earth who didn't deserve to go to a cross. And didn't deserve justice and judgment and wrath. It was Jesus Christ. Not a hint. No sin. No pride. Just humility and love for you. Giving his life for you. Now some of you may have noticed the, the title. If, you've, uh, if you're familiar with this title at all. A few years ago. There was a book written, and it was called A Severe Mercy. I'm going to give credit to where credit is due. It was written by a man named Sheldon Van Elken, and the book is called A Severe Mercy, and it's a book of of letters between two men, and they're both living with spouses who have terminal illnesses. And they begin writing each other questioning and wrestling and encouraging one another. One of them, Sheldon Van Elken, and by the way, the other, the other correspondent is, is C.S. Lewis, and they're writing back and forth. And Lewis leads Sheldon Van Elken to Christ. He gets converted. And he says, this is the turning point. This was the turning point for him. I came to see the God who made the world... came to live in the world and be killed by the world for the world and all of this driven by love. The God who made the world came to live in the world, was killed by the world for the world and all of this was driven by love. That's a God that I can trust with the life of my spouse. If you really believe that Jesus did what he said he was going to do and he does what he says he's going to do and came into the world that he created to be killed by the world he created out of love, you can trust your friends, you can trust your spouses, you can trust your life with a God like that. You can trust your life to a God like that. As a matter of fact, we're going to, to, to sing. We're going to sing the application today. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. You see, all of this talk about justice and judgment and sin and pride, it ends up pointing directly to the cross and the empty tomb. 
and Jesus in your place, driven by love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this (laughs) profound truth. Lord, we know, we know when we open our eyes, we look around at the world we live in, and we can get we can get discouraged, we can get overwhelmed, we, we, we call out for justice. When is this going to be made right? And we see way back in the the ancient world of this relatively unknown prophet, Obadiah, recognizing the reality of the coming judgment on the nations, the reality of pride and sin in the world. And then we see the the psalmist crying out for justice and we realize that the child who will be dashed will be Jesus. The child that will give up his life will be Jesus. The child that will grow up to bear the sins of the world because he loves us and offers a peace that no one else can offer is Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would fix our eyes on him and trust him with with whatever circumstance that we happen to be in, no matter how good, no no matter how bad. I know there are those really struggling now. And there are those who who are doing pretty well. We can trust Jesus. We can look to Jesus. We can trust Him with whatever situation, and we can trust Him with our very lives. Help us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to love Jesus, follow Jesus, fix our eyes on Jesus together as a church family, as a community, as a body, as we walk together through life. And Lord, we pray that even as we turn to sing, that you would take Take our lives. Use them. And Lord, give us the courage to follow wherever you lead. And again, to go together. And we pray all those things in in Jesus' name, the one who has come such a great, great distance for us. Amen.